So, <coughs> excuse me. As I was preparing for this message, I was trying to think through what's going on in how John, because we got to remember, we can't take, and I know I say this, it seems like almost every Sunday, but I'm always going to say it. You got to read what John's writing or what anyone in Scripture is writing in light of the context of everything that they've been saying. So we got to take the themes that John has been talking about from the beginning and trace that all the way through this account itself. But you also, something that hit me as I was studying this that I didn't get, and we're going to unpack it, the relationship that John who is, writes the last gospel, which is different from the other three gospels. The other three are called the synoptics because they've got a lot of the same material. They borrow from one another. But John has this really unique view, and one of the reasons why is because he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the evangelist. He's John who was right there with him in Jesus' inner circle. So when we see John talk very honestly about himself and his own failures, we need to pick up on that and see what he's saying. And we need to see that even in this account, John didn't get it. He didn't get it all. He admits that in verse 9. We see that. But I want to walk you through why, and I want to walk you through the glorious truth of how God makes himself known and how Jesus explains all that has transpired to his disciples, but the reason I think John puts this here is because he knows the state of his heart. He knows the state of our hearts. He knows that apart from God's grace, we do not get it. We remain in darkness until Christ shines his light on our hearts, on our minds, and helps us to see, makes us to see the glory that is the resurrection. Because see, as I was thinking about this, it'd be really easy to come in for this text, which is one of the most glorious texts in all of Scripture, because Jesus is not in the grave. We can declare Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. But then I ask myself, when people see my life, do they see the resurrection? Are, am I, are you living in light of the resurrection? Now what does that mean? Well, we're going to have to get to the implications, but think about this. Does your life reflect the fact that your only hope is that Christ, your Savior, your Creator, became a man, He died for your sins, he was in the grave for three days and He has risen again to give us new life. Does your life reflect that? Can someone see you, hear you day in, day out and say, that person believes that they are a new creation, that their past does not define them, that the world does not define them, but that eternity and holiness and righteousness defines them. Do our lives reflect it? Does our faith demonstrate it? So when we are bombarded with trials, when we are faced with suffering, when we are faced with temptation, and the world says, live like this, 
does our faith demonstrate the fact that Christ is risen? He is out of the grave. It has no hold on Him. Do our lives, do our, does our faith demonstrate that? Does our joy find its hope in it? Or is our joy more characterized by the, whatever we've gotten? How well Valentine's Day went this year? How well that our job is going? How well people are liking us? Do our lives reflect the resurrection? You see, I had to ask myself those things because that's when we see the resurrection and we see even in the ways that the disciples, because they still didn't get it. I realized maybe there's ways in my life where I still haven't got it. Because my life doesn't accurately reflect the glory that Jesus is risen. See, if this resurrection, if this account is true, it truly changes everything. Therefore, my life, our lives, if we believe in Christ, if we say He is Lord, our lives must look different. So for us, before we get to the implications, I want to walk through this text. And I want to show you that John's making a couple of cases here. He's making the case for the legal and historical reality, the validity that Christ is risen. And he does that as he interweaves this eyewitness event, as he's telling the narrative of what happened. John puts specific details to show, look, I was there, so was Peter, we saw this, this, and this. That means that Christ must be risen. He says, I want you to know the historical fact, but then he wants you to know the historical fact is only one part of it. If we don't get the scriptural, God's revelatory fact of who Jesus is. Some of the first things we see as we're walking through we see that Mary Magdalene, and she's the first one mentioned, she's the first witness to the resurrection in all of the Gospels. She's given priority, and I think one of the reasons she's given priority is because Jesus is showing, look, the church is going to be founded on principles that upend the expectations and the principles of the world. Because even though she saw it first, she wouldn't have been, because of the society then, a legal witness. Even as John's establishing the legal fact that Jesus is not in the grave through Peter and John's witness, John makes sure, and so do the other gospel writers, to put Mary first that it doesn't matter. The first person to see it may not have been, been accepted as a legal witness, but she was the first witness. That's huge. That's again showing that the resurrection, Jesus is saying that what the world says is wisdom, Christ has made foolish. Secondly, we see these details about the eyewitness, eyewitness account. See, Mary comes to the tomb early. We talked about the burial last week. John explained how Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were preparing the body because the disciples, sure, they wouldn't have been ready to do it, but they 
bury him in a rich man's grave. They prepare his body, but have limited time to do it because the Sabbath is at hand. They can't work on the Sabbath. The body has to be in the grave by dark on that Friday. Then the first day ends. Saturday. Now Saturday, the Sabbath, it's not mentioned. You think, they've been sitting in silence, mourning, confused, hurting, not knowing what is going on. They've sat there all night Friday night, all day Saturday. The third day would have begun by their reckoning at dark on Saturday night. She could have not have gone anywhere, but it still says she came to the tomb early while it was still dark. So she's coming early in the morning, the first day of the week. She's coming, as we see in other Gospels, most likely with some other ladies, but she's focused on here, Mary Magdalene. She's coming to finish the work of anointing and preparing the body because they were in such a rush to do it on Friday. They couldn't have gotten it all done. She's bringing these ointments, bringing these. She's going to prepare the dead body. She believes her Savior. She believes that the Messiah, the one whom they have hoped in, she believes Jesus is dead. So when she walks up in the dark and she probably couldn't see the tomb, we often some of the pictures we have of the tomb may not be accurate. Most likely it was a horizontal cut into a low cut into the rock and there would have been a stone placed in front of it and she would have had to bend down. It would have been maybe about three feet tall to look in. It's still dark, but she sees the stone has been rolled away. She might have been able to get a glimpse into the tomb and the, there's not a body in there. So what's her reaction? She immediately runs and she goes to Simon Peter and if you in the original we realize that Simon Peter and John, the other disciple, they're not in the same place because she has to go to Simon Peter and then she has to go to the other disciple. So She's going, she's like, guys, look, the body's gone. The body's gone. They've stolen his body. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. So what's Mary thinking? She's witnessed that the body's gone, but she doesn't have a hope that Jesus is alive. She says, we don't know where they have laid him. She assumes that this was a grave robbery. Remember all those spices, all those ointments, that linen cloth? It was expensive. When it's prophesied that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's grave, he's also, it's that he would be buried as a rich man would be. John talked about it last week, that it was, he had the burial of a king. Those spices, all the ointments, everything. So their assumption is, man, we tried to honor him and somebody's taken it all. They've desecrated They've put his body somewhere. They're just distraught. You can imagine, they've been depressed and confused and broken. They saw him hanging on a cross just a week after he had came into the city on a donkey and everyone was proclaiming, Hosanna, the king is coming. 
she thinks they've taken his body. We don't know where they've laid him. So Peter, I think it's wonderful, Peter, and you've got to think, Peter's not been mentioned since he betrayed Christ. Yet he's the first person she goes to. She knows that she can go to Peter. She goes to John. And Peter's immediate response, he gets with John, and they're going toward the tomb, but they're running together. Because I know Peter's probably hot mad. You can imagine what he's, he's like, man, I'm, after all this, how in the world could this happen? After all this, So I can imagine Peter and John's thinking, man, there's more going on here because I think John's kind of been the quiet one that sees, he understands a little bit more. Peter's hot mad, he's running. So what does John do? And this whole account, I think it's just very personal. There's not, I don't think there's hidden meaning here because how John overtakes Peter. John, one, is younger than Peter that we know because he lives a lot, young, a lot longer than Peter. And John simply in his excitement, in his youth, runs past Peter and beats him to the tomb. Do you think they're both there? They're both confused. Peter's mad. John's, he's like, i got to see what's going on. So what does he do? Both of them are running together, but the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. But what does he do? He stoops to look in. Remember, that door's low. It's like he ran in, he's like, huh? He's got to here in it's still early in the morning he looks in and he's seeing what's there so he stoops to look in but what does john see you remember they were told this is a grave robbery they've taken his body we don't know where they've laid him so apparently either she didn't see or didn't process something that john immediately sees Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there. Like, what do you have the linen cloth? No, the linen cloths. The most expensive part of this whole burial process, this linen that his body was wrapped up in. If they stole his body, they would have taken that because that was the most valuable thing in there. They thought, if it was true, that it was grave robbers. So John... It's sitting there, and I can just imagine, John's a thinker, he's, he's like, wait a second, the linen, it's there. I, I've got to process this. He's sitting there kind of in stupefaction, just looking at it, and here comes Peter, no doubt huffing behind him. Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Peter don't care, he's going straight in. And you got to think, like if he's been at a run, he's coming straight in, he sees John hanging out the door, and he's just like, get out of my way. He ducks in and he looks in. Then John goes in after him. He saw the linen cloth lying there. But then this is one of the kickers. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. These details, which we pass over so often, are crucial for John to establish the fact there's two men Two witnesses, legal in a Jewish court, to say, look, they saw it, they testified, and these are the facts. That linen cloth proves that Jesus rose from the grave, and here's how. 
Three things. Murray Harris points these out. No grave robbery had taken place. Mary's worst fears are immediately ruled out. They didn't rob the grave. And this is why. Because in a robbery, the grave clothes would not have been left behind. Even if they were just wanting the body, they would not have left the linen, which was so valuable, behind. They also wouldn't have had time to unwrap him just to take the body and leave it all there. Secondly, the corpse, it couldn't have been removed by a friend because they would have not removed the grave clothes. And again, still taking the body because that would have been one of the ultimate indignities. And the purification of the Jewish people, the idea of taking a dead body, they couldn't touch the dead body. They wouldn't be able to do that. They'd make themselves pure. It was one of the, the you know, you do taboo things that you don't do. So it couldn't have been his body wasn't robbed. The grave wasn't robbed. It wasn't friends who took it. Look, his friends are there. The linens were still there. But then the kicker. They saw the linen there, but then they saw that napkin, that, the, what was over his head, the face cloth. And this is what was commonly used and may have been one of, uh, you know, Jew, one of Joseph of Arimathea's. It was a, it was a linen cloth that would go over his face because they would have wrapped his whole body then laid this over his face. But it says it's gently folded in this text. Some, some translators would say what this means is that it just laid down perfectly. What this proves is that Jesus, just as he would later appear through a locked door in the room, Jesus passed through those cloths and they just stayed laying there. When John and Peter saw that, they said, He's not dead. He's gone. His body is not here. Then the other disciple, John, verse 8, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed. He knew, and John is stating for the the fact, historical fact, by two witnesses, Jesus was risen. He was not dead. His body couldn't have been stolen. He couldn't have been taken away by anybody else. He passed through these articles of, of clothing, these, these burial clothes. Jesus is, therefore, he must be risen from the dead. That's the only conclusion they could come to. But here's the thing. Even as John establishes this legal fact, there's still something missing here. Despite the fact that they've been with Jesus for three years, they've witnessed all this, and then they see the greatest miracle of all. Verse 9, But yet, for as yet, they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. They didn't get what was going on. They said, look, it's there. His body's gone. We believe that that's true. We believe that he's risen. He's somewhere, but we don't understand why. John's saying that even as he saw that and believed that Jesus' body wasn't there, because you've got to remember, John's writing this historical account to reflect on his experience, what he did, what he saw. He says, look, we didn't understand 
Scripture. We knew He was risen, but we didn't get it. And that explains then what happens in verse 10. What do the disciples do? They went back to their homes. See, Kostenberger helps us understand this. He says the point is, is that the disciple Jesus loved, he believed on the basis of seeing rather than believing from Scripture. See, he believed on the basis of seeing what he saw in the tomb, but not from what he saw in Scripture. And what's made much clearer later on in this chapter when Thomas, who doesn't believe, refuses to believe, and then sees Jesus, Jesus says, it's, you know, you see because you believe because you see. How much better is it for those who believe without seeing? See, Jesus explains this. This, this one, this does show us that the disciples, they didn't fabricate a story in order to fit their understanding of Scripture. They are providing witness before they even got why he rose from the dead. They knew he was risen. See, they did not understand. They, what they witnessed was solid proof. Jesus wasn't dead. His body's gone and only he left. But they did not understand what it meant. See, they did not understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made and that had revealed through the written word. They knew he had ri was risen, the man Jesus Christ, but they did not realize that he was the Lord who kept his promise. My greatest fear is that today you might leave and some of you may just be like Peter and John that you'll see the historical legal concrete evidence that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave but that you will go home unaffected because you don't understand that He is the Lord who has kept His Word. you got to get that, because that's why John's putting this in here. He's saying, look, I even saw that Jesus was raised from the dead. I knew, but I didn't understand why. Even the demons believe and shudder. But have they placed faith? No. We are given the evidence. But do, have we placed our faith in the Lord who has kept His Word? I hope my prayer is that none of us will leave this morning unaffected by the glory of the resurrection. We see that we must understand that Jesus rose again to new life, not just to show that He had victory over death, but that we in Him can have rescue. We can have victory over sin. But we still must trust 
in Him. Trust that He keeps His Word. Remember, you go back to the garden. What happened with Adam and Eve? Why did they sin? They doubted God at His Word. And God through Christ has proven that He keeps His Word. His promise to redeem. Now I want to show you what is probably, I always go back to it. I think I've, I'm falling in love with some other piece of Scripture that's just amazing. And then I go back to Luke 24 and I want you to turn there with me now because this passage is wonderful. And I believe with all my heart that John knew this passage, knew this account, and was implying by what he writes in the rest of John 20, remember what happened in Luke 24. Remember what happened on the road to Emmaus. You'll, you'll turn to Luke 24. I want to start in verse 13. Now you've got to remember what's going on here. Remember the timeline. Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, while it's still dark, goes to the grave, sees the tomb that has been opened. She runs and gets Peter and John. Peter and John run to the grave. They witness the linen, the face cloth. They are stunned. They know He's risen, but they don't understand why. So they return to their homes they go back, as we know in the other accounts, they've gone back to the other disciples. We know that they go back and talk to them because that's what happens in John 20. But then we go back to a parallel account in Luke 24, and verse 13. Remember, that very day. So, Luke 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. So all of this has transpired. Peter and John and Mary Magdalene, they've all gone back to the disciples. They've talked about what they've seen. We read that in verse 12. Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping, looking in, and saw he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. But he still doesn't get it. So, verse 14. These two disciples are on their way to Emmaus. They're walking away from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, this is why this is just so wonderful. Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. So, I mean, you've got to think about what's going on. These are two of the disciples. Not, most likely not, one of the, not two of the twelve, but two of the disciples, the larger group. And they're walking. Like, guys, can you believe what has happened? Like, we started this week off. We thought it was going to be so amazing. Jesus is walking in. And then in one day, He's dead. We just had to sit in the Sabbath. We just sat together. And then this morning, what you believe what Mary and what Peter and John were saying? Like, what does this mean? I don't get any of it. And they're sitting there walk, talking about that. And then some dude just, you know, comes off on the side roads and starts walking with them. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. See, this is really important. Their eyes were kept from recognizing Him because what did Jesus want for them? We're going to find out. He wanted them to believe not based on sight, but to believe based on the Word of God, that God keeps His Word. And He said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? <laughs> like, 
man. Like, if you don't think God has a sense of humor in the midst of joy, like, he's just being so wonderful to them here. And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Man, are you, are you thick? Have you not heard what's been going on? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They got the hope. They they wanted Him to be the Redeemer of Israel. But see, this is why Peter and John were so confused. If you remember just a few chapters ago, on their way into Jerusalem, they were arguing over who's going to be the greatest in His kingdom. Because remember, what did the disciples think? They thought Jesus was going to come and tear down, redeem them, not from their sins, but from the Roman oppressors. They thought that Jesus was going to save them and give them great things in this world. We thought He would be the one who would redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the what day? The third day since these things happened. Moreover, so that was a big disappointment then. But then get this, this morning, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. What is Jesus' response? Is he standing there right before them? Does he reveal himself and say, no, look, I'm alive? No, he says this because remember, what had their hope been in? That he would be the Redeemer who would save them from all their earthly problems and give them all the earthly things that they could want. And Jesus is making sure, making clear, the resurrection is not about this earth, what you're going to get here, but it is about the eternity. That has been purchased for those who believe. So he says to them in verse 25, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? It was, he says, was it not necessary that He suffer? To enter into His glory was to go to the cross. If you go back to John chapter 12, you see that the the Father is glorified in Christ when Christ goes to the cross and accomplishes His will of redemption. And what does Jesus do? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself.
How do we understand who Jesus is? We can believe, and this is the tragedy of so many. We can believe that Jesus was a real person, that Jesus really was crucified, that He really rose from the grave. But if you don't believe that Jesus is Lord who has come to redeem and to accomplish salvation, reconciliation, propitiation for our sins, just as God promised from all the prophets. If you don't believe that, you don't believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And here's the thing, if you believe that, if you see that truth, it will change you. The resurrection means so much in light of that God has kept His Word. So what does Jesus do with the disciples? See, John recognizes in chapter 20, verse 9, they did not yet understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. So they went back to their homes. But this is what's really crazy if you keep going in Luke 24. So Jesus is explaining all of Scripture, how it all pointed to Him. And I just got to think in their minds, they're being like, man, I never saw this before. You see, God in His divine grace is opening their eyes to understand Scripture, to understand the truth that God has kept His Word. Every single promise that He's put since Moses started writing in Genesis, all the way through Zechariah, through Malachi, through all the prophets, He has kept His Word. And Jesus, it has all pointed to Him. So the two disciples, verse 28 of Luke 24, they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if He were going farther. But they urged Him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So He went in to stay with them, and when He was at table with them, He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while we talked to us, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and went back to Jerusalem. Remember, seven miles. It was at the end of the day. It was getting dark. That's why they got him to stay. And they said, We can't wait. We're going back to the disciples. So that very hour they rose and returned. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, because he had appeared to Peter. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. If you go on down, we see that he he shows, I've got a real body. He says, look, They're marveling at him. He took a piece of fish. He eats it. But then in verse 44, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. I don't want anyone to leave here today without a confidence that Jesus, His death, His resurrection is the fulfillment of God's promise. So I want to look 
at three verses real briefly to show how it was specifically promised from of old. You've got to think Jesus had hours of walking with these guys to unpack all of Scripture. And it's not like they had a Bible in their hands, a scroll in their hands, or walking around like, see, here, here. He's just he's walking through the story, showing that when Isaac was being sacrificed by Abraham, he said, look, it was pointing to me. When, when God promised to Genesis 3, to, in Genesis 3.15 to Eve that her seed would stomp and crush the heel of the serpent, he said, that's me. When Moses said that a greater prophet was coming, a prophet who would lead God's people out of slavery, truly bring them out of slavery to sin, not slavery just in Egypt, but slavery to sin into eternity free from sin as God's chosen people. He said, that greater prophet, it's me. When he says to David that one of your seed shall forever sit on the throne and he will reign forever, he will be a man after God's own heart, he will shepherd the people and lead the people of Israel well, he said, that was me. When he talks about the suffering servant, when Isaiah talked about the righteous one, the suffering servant who would suffer for the people to redeem them, to take on their sins, he said, that was me. When David the psalmist is writing, and he writes in Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. He says, that was me. In Hosea, the prophet said, after two days He will revive us, on the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him as a promise to the people of Israel who would believe that we join with Christ in the resurrection. He's saying, look, just like Jonah was in the well for three days and came out by the grace of God, a new man, ready to preach. He said, look, that pointed to me. It all pointed to Christ. Because God keeps His Word. Isaiah 53. You see, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus was unpacking all these things. To those two on the road to Emmaus and then to the disciples there in that upper room, he makes clear to them, this is why I rose again. I didn't rise again. I didn't go to that cross. I didn't defeat the world in the ways you expected. You were confused because you thought I was going to establish a kingdom here. But what did he say to Pilate? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. 
Jesus says to the disciples, look, this is why you're confused. You knew I was a great man. You knew I was a Messiah, but you didn't see that I am the Messiah until now. And what do they do? They believe. They know the truth. You see, if we know that the resurrection happened, that's not enough. You've got to know that Jesus is Lord. And I ask you, have you came to Him and said, I wanted you to be a Savior for all the wrong reasons, just like your disciples, just like John talks about. But I realize you're a Savior who has come to redeem me from my sin. You are a Savior who has come to provide reconciliation with God. You are God in the flesh. And the reason that you are risen again is because only you are righteous and you are seeking to lead the righteous who believe in you into new life. That's the gospel. Do you believe that Jesus truly is Lord? Do you believe that His sacrifice was for our eternity. You see, there's some implications that I want to walk through. Four implications of the resurrection. You see, the resurrection, it first shows the foolishness of the world. John's already done that in this account masterfully. Because who's the first witness? It's a group of women who, whose legal witness would not have been accepted back then. But God says, look, I'm coming to a people not as the world would want them to come, but I'm coming to show where real life comes from. He's shown that the foolishness of the world, that's one small factor but important, but the foolishness of the world because look, everything that Pilate was striving after, everything that the Jewish leaders were striving after, even everything that the disciples in their misguided understanding of who Christ was, what they were striving after, a place in His earthly kingdom, Jesus in His death and then His resurrection has shown them all to be absolutely foolish, moronic. Because he says, look, they thought they won. You thought you were going to win to the disciples. Pilate thought he's good to go. None of them understood I was accomplishing eternal redemption. And that's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 1, for I delivered to you as, as of first of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, what? In accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, in what? In accordance with the Scriptures. Scripture shows that what the world wants is contrary to what Christ has accomplished. 
Now, you're going to hear this in a variety of different ways. You've got it from the secular world, which will say, live it up here now because this is all you've got. Do what makes you feel good. Do what you think is right in your heart. Because this world, this life is all you got. And Christ in the resurrection has shown, look, this life is but a vapor. What matters is an eternity. This also shows the foolishness of what is so well known as the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, the name it and claim it gospel. Because Jesus hasn't come, He didn't die, and He didn't rise again so that we would have lives of wealth characterized by the things of this world here and now. He died and He rose again so that we would have life and life eternal. That we would know God. So Paul says later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, and if Christ, it shows the foolishness of the world and it shows that the foolishness, if this isn't true, if the resurrection isn't true, then we of all people, he says, are to be most pitied. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Do you get how the resurrection changes the way we live? If, it is, if we have hope in this life only, then we are to be most pitied. But he says, look at the resurrection. What he said in verse 3 and verse 4, he rose again, he was crucified according to the Scriptures. If you need faith that gives you something to stand on, know that Christ died and rose again because it was the promise, the Word of God, so that we might have life. So that we might have life. shows that the world is foolish so it doesn't make sense if we get bogged down by the cares of this world we should be free to give this is we talked about generosity this morning and how the people of israel they were willing to give up and participate in for the building of the tabernacle it's because god worked in their hearts and he showed them the value of knowing him and they didn't care about holding back for themselves when they saw what they could do for God together. In this same book in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about building up the church, how that's so important and that's only made possible by people who see in light of eternity. And that's only made possible by the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we've got no hope. But the resurrection shows the foolishness of the world wisdom of the gospel the resurrection shows us that death is not the end we just talked about this but we got to push this home that it's not the death is not the end but just as christ has been raised we who are raised with him 
have life and life eternal. And what is life eternal? Remember, John, John defined it back in John 17. It's to know God. When we know God, we have eternal life. And we've got to know God how? As He has made Himself known in His Word. It shows us that death is not the end. And this is the life that we are to have. Life with Christ, transformed by Christ. First Peter, when you think about Peter writing about this years, decades after the fact, as he's writing to the church, he says in 1 Peter 1, 19-21, with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Your faith, your hope, they rest on the word, the truth of God. His character, His promise to save, and nothing else. Our faith, our hope are in God because we know with confidence that Jesus keeps His word and He has not only promised that the grave could not hold Him. What do you say in John 16, 33? It says, don't fear the world. I've overcome the world. And then, what did he say back in John 14? Not only is he going to overcome the world, but he promises us, I'm going to prepare a place for you. The fact that he rose again from the grave assures us that he's not only conquered death, accomplished victory over sin, redemption for those who believe, that He's going now to prepare a place and He will come again because He's kept all of His promises and He will continue to do so. And for that reason, we can know there's something much more than this life. That death does not have a hold on us. But are we living? Remember, let's get back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Do our lives reflect the resurrection? Do our lives reflect this confident hope that this life is not all there is? Do our lives reflect the confident hope that God, if He can raise Christ from the dead after the brutal crucifixion, the torture that He endured as He laid in that grave for three days, if He can raise Christ from the dead, He can resurrect our weak, dark, broken, sinful hearts. The resurrection shows us that death is not the end. But are we living in light of eternity? How do we live in light of eternity? We live according to this implication. That the resurrection means we have power to live in victory over sin. We have power to live in victory over sin. It does not define those who identify with Christ, who place their trust in Christ. Sin does not define you. So you, if you're struggling, know this. You are not defined by your sin any longer. You, if you identify with Christ, are defined by Him. His righteousness has made many to be accounted righteous. It is His righteousness that God now looks on, 
those who have trusted in Him, who have placed their faith in Him. Faith. The author of Hebrews talks about this, and this is where I wanted to encourage you from for this. How do we have power to live in victory over sins? Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? How do we, we lay aside those things which encumber us? By looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What's the author of Hebrews saying there? Saying if you want to live in light of the resurrection, if you want to have victory over sin, you've got to look to Christ who endured the punishment for your sins. And when we see what He suffered for our sake, how dare we go back to the sin which He endured, which He took on the punishment for you see the key to living in victory over sin is not through willpower, not through your own might. The key to living in victory over sin is seeing that Christ took on sin for us. When He did not have to, He suffered in our place when He did not have to. When we see that, I hope that when you see that, you are led to repentance and faith. Not only that, I hope that you're led from repentance and faith to life and confidence as you see the truth. You see, John and Peter, the disciples, they started to understand it. John, this whole time as he's been working through, when you see the word belief in his gospel, it's these little hints. He's saying, they believe, but not yet. They believe a little, but not yet. When they believe and they understand, it's when they understand Christ as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Because for in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. The revelation, the promises, the truth of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Full of grace and truth. Until we get that, we won't get the implications of the resurrection. Until we get that, by the grace of God, he opens up your heart you won't get how to have victory over sin you won't get how what he offers in his kingdom is so much better than anything the world has and finally we know we have victory over sin we know that this world is not all but when we look at the resurrection of Christ 
we know this. Because death no longer has a hold on him. Because sin has been overcome through him. The resurrection means that we can look forward to an eternity with our creator apart from sin. Colossians 3, 1-4 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. We see this promised at the end of Scripture, and as John the Apostle writes again and writes in Revelation 21, 1-5, through 5, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Remember, he's remembering what Jesus had promised to him and the other disciples back in John 14, that he's preparing a place for him. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And here's what's really, really important. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Write this down down. You got to think what was going on in John's head. Jesus, who said, look, I've been writing it down from Genesis to Revelation. I'm writing it down. These words, they're trustworthy, they're true. Here's the hope. The resurrection, it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ has accomplished redemption for us and that new life is possible. I hope, my prayer, is that you believe that, that that's your hope. But here's the thing. you hear all this today but it hasn't led you to repentance and faith and I can promise you you're going to walk out those doors you're going to go back to your home and apart from the grace of God to show you in his word if you haven't come to repentance and faith you'll go home unchanged and what's so tragic about that is that the world around us won't hear this wonderful, wonderful hope. So let's consider the implications of the resurrection. Let's consider this life, this redemption that God has accomplished for us. 
let's go forth proclaiming to those who are lost, to those who are consumed by the world, to those who are, are consumed by fear, who are consumed by their own sin. And let's say, look, here is the hope of the gospel, that God has kept His word, and in Christ His word has been accomplished. Let's be transformed by the Word of God so that we, through Him and by Him, might transform the world around us. It's a great promise. One of my favorite verse, chapters, sections in Isaiah, the hope to look forward to. I challenge you to read through Isaiah. He says in Isaiah 25, Verse 6, on this mountain, as he looks forward to the end of time when God has accomplished all that he has promised, it says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the, mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Church, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray.